So if you please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we're going to have just one verse today. It's going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 6, and verse 38. And like Bruce said, we're starting a new series today. Um, so if you will please follow along with me uh, as we read Luke 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and run over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Let's pray. Lord, we come and thank you for the opportunity to gather together in this new year with a body of believers and a, to show our great unity, God. I uh, pray and thank you for all the blessings you've bestowed on us so far. Um, I also ask that you bless Bruce as he prepares to give us prepares to give us uh, words from your word. Um, thank you for all the things you've done for us. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate that. Something that uh, we have been doing here at Glenwood for, for many, many years now, it's been our practice to uh, take time um, every year or every other year, at least every three years, and that is to talk about stewardship. And especially, uh, it's been our practice to do this through the month of January, the beginning of a new year, uh, such as we are now. And, uh, and so, again, this year, that's what I want us to do as a church family. I want us to talk about stewardship uh, from God's Word, from God's perspective. And yes, that includes giving. That includes money. And I know that can make a few people a little nervous, and so speaking of nervousness about money and just money in general, how many of you uh, heard about the three tightwads who visited a certain church for the very first time? Not wanting to give any money, they deliberately came late so they could skip the offering. But they were shocked to discover that in this church the offering came after the sermon. And so not knowing what to do when the offering was announced, one of them fainted and the other two just carried him right out. Now, if we're honest, that's how some of us, perhaps even all of us, that's how we feel about the subject of money and giving. We would like to avoid it if possible. But it's kind of hard to avoid the subject of money, the subject of giving, even here in church. After all, research says that we spend somewhere around 50% of our time thinking about money. And if you think about it, we actually spend most of our time trying to make money and the rest of our life trying to spend it. So it's not surprising that the Bible is filled with many stories about money. How to make it, how to spend it, how to save it, how to give it away. Our lives are consumed with money. In fact, in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of every six verses has to do with money, either directly or indirectly. In 16 out of the 38 parables that Jesus told, money is involved in those parables. And there are over 2,300 verses in the Bible that relate specifically to finances and our possessions. You say, well, what does this mean? Well, it simply means is that you can't read the Bible very long, and especially the Gospels and the New Testament, without realizing that what we do with our money is pretty significant, is pretty important. Jesus knows that our hearts 
somehow are connected to our money. And that's why he devoted so much of his teaching to this critical area of our life. He dealt with money matters because he knows that money matters to us and to our God. In fact, Jesus' statement in Matthew 6, 21 is not only well-known biblically, but it's also proven practically where he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the issue at play here is not just dollars and cents and nickels and quarters and whatnot. There really isn't uh, this orientation of the heart that is tied to the use of our money, the stewardship, if you will, of our money. So what is the paradox of generosity that we're calling this series? Well, first of all, I know, I know most of us, we have a concept of what a paradox is. Here's a Webster's Dictionary. A paradox is a statement that seems to say opposite or contradictory things, and yet it is true. And that's what we're going to find in this series. And specifically, the generosity paradox. It is this, and we'll put it in a statement form here. You're welcome to pull out the insert in your bulletin and take notes if you want to, or you're welcome just to follow along on the screen behind me. But the generosity paradox is this right here. By giving, we receive. By grasping, we lose. And over the course of the next few weeks, during the month of January, we're going to unpack this from God's perspective, what God has to say about this. By the way, the paradox of generosity is also the title and the theme of a recent bestseller from a non-Christian perspective. But why should we be surprised by that? The generosity paradox is not only a theme the Bible teaches, but it's also a universal human experience. The contribution of the authors of this best-selling book here has confirmed this truth by studying the lives of thousands of people. And here's what they discovered in their study, their research. People who live generous lives tend to be happier, even healthier, and experience more purpose in life than others who are less generous. And the fact that their book focused on the paradox factor should be no surprise either. For paradox is the stuff of which Jesus' upside-down, right-side-up kingdom is made of. You may remember some of that when we looked at the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. For in the radical teaching of Jesus, the way up is down, the way down is up, the weak are strong, the strong are weak. By gaining we lose, by losing we gain, and by dying to self we find eternal life in Jesus Christ. It seems like a paradox. In fact, Jesus summarized all this in one great statement in the Gospels, and we find it in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, when he said, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And if what Jesus says is true, it leads us to this radical conclusion then. We've been lied to. Everything our world has said is the direct opposite of this truth. We've been told that if you work hard enough, if you get the highest grades, if you put in the most hours, you make more money, have more things, then you will be happy and you can finally start living and enjoying life. But face it, you can gain it all and yet there is still something missing within your heart. 
It reminds me of the scene from the movie The Matrix. How many have ever seen that? Yeah, I like that movie. Where the prophet-like figure Morpheus says to Nero, you've been living in a dream world. You must wake up. And so must we. In fact, that's my goal here in this series. It's my prayer is that God will use this series to wake us up, if you will, to the generosity paradox. By giving, we receive. By grasping, we lose. And so let's take the next few minutes to discover the dynamics of generosity that on the surface seem like a paradox. But underneath is the absolute truth coming from God. Number one, the first dynamic here we're going to unfold is it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. This first dynamic comes from Jesus himself when the Apostle Paul urges the church at Ephesus to remember what Jesus said. And Paul records Jesus' words here in Acts 20, verse 35, where Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this is countercultural. We live in a world where most people believe it makes more sense to hold on to something rather than to let it go. After all, the wisdom of the world tells us that if you give something away, you lose it. And if you keep something, then it's yours forever. But Jesus turns the world's wisdom upside down when he tells us that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is comparing relative values here. The most important word here is the word more. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that there's no blessing in receiving. We just celebrated Christmas. How many of you received a gift? I'm sure a lot of you did. And it was a blessing to receive a Christmas gift, was it not? Sure it was. In fact, it's a blessing. We all know that's true. When we've experienced the blessings of receiving gifts or even perhaps acts of kindness from others. For example, if you are thirsty and someone gives you a bottle of water or a cold glass of iced tea or Diet Coke, whatever the case may be, you are blessed. If you are hungry and someone gives you a Joe's barbecue dinner, oh, I'm sorry, KC, you know, or whatever your favorite barbecue joint is, and they give you a gift card there, or perhaps they even make it for you, you are blessed. If, if you are broke, if someone gives you 50 bucks, you are blessed. So what does this first dynamic mean? Well, it means as blessed as receiving is, Jesus is putting forth here to us that giving is even more blessed. Now, let's be honest. That is a hard dynamic to comprehend, to believe, especially if you've only been on the receiving end of giving. You're naturally going to think, well, that's impossible. There's no way giving is more blessed than receiving. This is a dynamic you come to understand through experience. You trust God. You start giving, and then you will begin to understand that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. And as we ponder these words of Jesus, perhaps some of you are thinking about the question of why and how. I mean, why did Jesus say this, and, and how is giving more blessed than receiving? Well, there are three answers that may help you to better understand what Jesus meant. Notice, first of all, giving frees us from the bond of greed. That's one way that it's a blessing. 
Giving actually frees us from the bond of greed. Jesus once told the crowd of everyday working class common people in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You see, receiving keeps the focus on us. But giving forces us to think about the needs of others. Receiving meets my own needs, but giving opens my heart to the world around me. You can give from selfish motives, but you can't give selfishly very long. Either your selfishness will choke off your giving, or your giving will quench your selfishness. Do you realize that most people in America give very little to church or to other charitable organizations. In fact, according to Christian Smith and Hillary Davidson, the authors of the best-selling book called The Paradox of Generosity, and I quote, they say, nearly half of all Americans, 44.8%, give away not one dollar by their own admission. Some of us may assume that giving increases as one's income increases. But this is not necessarily true either. Listen to what Smith and Davidson write in their book. It stands to reason that the more money people make, the greater percentage of it they should be able to give away without cutting too much into their own basic needs and wants. But this is not the case. Making more money in America is not associated with giving money more generously. Earning a higher income in the U.S., in other words, does not translate into giving larger proportions of that income away. And you may be asking, well, why is that? Well, because by nature, we are all born greedy. Darla and I, it's amazing, we never had to teach our two boys to be greedy. Never had to sit down and do a lesson with them. Here's how to be greedy, Tyler and Jack. Never had to teach them that. Never had to show them that. It's amazing how fast they started saying, mine, mine, mine. Almost before they said mom and dad. This is why Jesus tells us, watch out. In other words, beware. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus knows our disposition toward greed. And he also knows that giving frees us from this bond of greed. Number two, a second blessing, is giving frees us from the grip of materialism. You see, it's not our bank accounts that get us into trouble. Money by itself is morally neutral. A dollar is neither good nor evil. It's what you do with your money that matters. Just consider the words of the Apostle Paul here in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, where he writes, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, when I read the first part of verse 10, I say to myself, I don't love money. But then I read the phrase, eager for money, and I'm stopped dead in my tracks. Because if I'm honest, I have to admit, well, that's where I struggle. I'm eager for money. 
It reminds me of the man who said, if money were a woman, I wouldn't say we were in love, but we're definitely dating. And that's the propensity for all of us. The odd thing is, in the end, money can't satisfy. It can't make you happy. Which brings us to the third blessing of giving. Giving frees us from this myth that says money makes you happy. In fact, let's do a little, a little uh, experiment here. Fill in the blank. If only I had blank, I'd be happy. You see, that's the message of our culture, that you can buy happiness. People want more money because they think it will bring them more happiness. And yet numerous studies have shown that more money contributes very little to one's sense of happiness. In fact, it's interesting. Evelyn Adams won $5.4 million in the lottery a few years back. She quotes, winning the lottery isn't always what it's cracked up to be. I won the American dream, but I lost it too. William Post won $16.2 million in the lottery. He writes, I wish it never happened. It was a total nightmare. Financial planner Susan Bradley in an article on sudden money says, and I quote, in our culture there is a widely held belief that money solves problems. People think if they had more money, their troubles would be over. When a family receives sudden money, they frequently learn that money can cause us many, as many problems as it solves. As one pastor said, as long as money is the chief source of my security, then money will be the chief source of my anxiety. Here's the wisdom of others about money and happiness. John Cavanaugh wrote in his book, Following Christ in a Consumer Society, we are conditioned to be dissatisfied cravers rather than appreciators of the goods of the earth. Arthur Simon in his book, How Much is Enough, writes, once you have your basic needs met, the extras don't add much happiness. And not infrequently, they detract from it by nurturing a habit of desire that breeds dissatisfaction. King Solomon, who was once the richest man in the whole world, said in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, those who love money will never have enough. How absurd to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what is the advantage of wealth except to watch it run through your fingers? And I quote that from the New Living Translation. Remember the words of Jesus. Seems like a paradox. And yet it is the first dynamic of generosity. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The second dynamic is this. Give, and it will be given to you. Give, and it will be given to you. Now just like the first, the second dynamic of generosity also comes from Jesus himself. Notice what Jesus writes in Luke 6, verse 38. It's the verse that Jeremy read for us. Look at it once more. It says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For at the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So the question is, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying here? 
And what difference does it make in my giving, in my stewardship? Well, to better understand what Jesus is saying here, it may be helpful to break this verse down into three parts. Notice the first part, the practice of generosity. The practice of generosity, and that is this. True generosity gives willingly from the heart. Now, it should be no surprise that the primary command in this call to generosity by Jesus Christ is strategically placed as the very first word of verse 38. And the first word of verse 38 is what? Give. It's impossible to practice generosity without giving. And it means to give something to someone of your own accord. Now, that's an obvious definition, but it is a needed reminder that you have not given if you have to be begged, forced, pushed, bribed, or manipulated to give. And you have not given if your primary concern is what you will get in return. That's not generosity, that's negotiation. True generosity, we see here, gives willingly from the heart. Now understand, generosity starts in the heart, not in one's bank account. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, tells us of a widow who, who gave two mites. She put two mites in the temple treasury, which together was worth less than a penny. Jesus, looking at this, saw this, and, and he does something that no one expected him to do. After Jesus saw what the widow had given, he, he commended the widow for her gift of two mites, rather than the people who gave large amounts. You say, well, why? Because generosity is not about the amount of the gift. It is about the willingness of the heart. And that's what this widow lady exemplified. True generosity because it came from her heart. Jesus commands us to give willingly from the heart. And on the surface, that in and of itself seems contradictory. How do you command someone to do something willingly? But Jesus is not commanding us to do something as much as he is commanding us to be generous people who are willing to give. This command is in the present tense as well. And that's interesting to take note of. Which means Jesus is not calling us to, to perform an act. He is calling us to embrace a lifestyle. What kind of life? A lifestyle of generosity here. And that's only possible when we give our lives first to the Lord. This is what we see here by the Apostle Paul in describing the generosity of the Macedonia churches. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 3 through 5, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they, and notice, and they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. You see, this is the heart of Christian generosity. We give ourselves to the Lord first. And when you do that, it's not a problem. It's not an issue then to give of your resources, whether that be your time, your treasure, 
or your talents. There's a Nigerian saying that goes like this, it is the heart that does the giving, the fingers only let it go. And you may be wondering, is it worth it to give myself? Is it worth it to even give my resources, and specifically my money to the Lord? And the answer is always yes. Notice the promise here of generosity. Those who give generously will receive generously. Jesus says in verse 38, look at it again. Give, that's the practice. Now notice the promise. And it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. Now at this point, it helps to understand that Jesus' promise here is set in the context of the Middle Eastern market. And specifically, a market where buyers and sellers would haggle together over prices, quality, and amount. Farmers bring their grain, such as, as wheat and corn, and, and they would spread it out on a table or perhaps on a mat on the ground. Customers examine the grain, begin to make an offer, and the haggling begins. And when a price is finally set, the customer offers his container. And that container is usually a large bowl or a pot, and then the seller uses a scoop to fill the container. Now, it's at this point that the process becomes rather fascinating. In Jesus' day, there were basically four stages of measuring grain for a customer. First, the seller fills the container all the way to the top. And second, he presses the grain down in the container to make room for just a little bit more. And third, he shakes the container so the grain will settle to the bottom even more and make room for even more grain to be filled on top. And then finally, he fills the container until it's overflowing. At that point, the seller would then catch the overflow of the grain and he would pour it into his pouch of his robe. That pouch kind of acted as a uh, carry-all bag so that he could bring food home from the market. And what Jesus is doing here is he's using this common occurrence to illustrate the promise of abundance God will bestow upon those who give generously. Here's the point. You can't outgive God. You can't outgive our heavenly Father. He will never allow himself to be outgiven. God will always make sure that he is more generous than you are with him. Now, the quote, the good measure that God gives back to us is not always in money. It's not always in material goods, but it is always worth far more than we give. This is God's promise of generosity. Those who give generously will receive generously. R.G. Letourneau, that name may be familiar to some of you. He was an inventor of earth-moving machines, and he was the founder of Letourneau University. I first learned of R.G. Letourneau when I was in college down in Springfield, Missouri. And we had a basketball tournament 
at his college down in Longview, Texas, over the holidays. And that's where I learned of R.G. Letourneau and his story and his fame, if you will. He was so confident in God's faithfulness that he reached a place in his life where he was giving, get this, 90% of his income to the Lord. And when asked how he was able to sustain such a high level of generosity, he responded, I shovel out the money and God shovels it back. But God has a bigger shovel than I do. And he was right. God has a much bigger shovel than you do. God is able, he is ready and willing to reward your generosity by giving back to you with good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. All through God's Word, He restates this. He emphasizes this principle here, this promise to us. In Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 10, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 through 8 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then listen to this. And God is able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. All of these verses here point to this promise of generosity. Those who give generously will receive generously. Most of you know that every year our church has a Christmas offering that uh, we raise funds for to fund our benevolence ministry. And we do this beginning in November and in through December here. And we just finished up our Christmas offering. And we also, you know, through our grow groups, we, we have an adoptive family ministry that we do at Christmas time. And, uh, and so, obviously, as a pastor, we've been doing this for quite some time. And I know this is coming. So I think about, Lord, what, what, do you, what is it you want me to give towards this offering? And even on behalf of our adoptive families. And so I began to to think about, pray about an amount of money to give for our Christmas offering. And had that amount in my mind. And, and uh, a couple weeks later, after thinking about this, it just so happened that uh, I conducted a funeral of a longtime member in our church. And uh, it's, it's customary that when you officiate weddings and funerals, the family would give you a, an honorarium. Guess how much that honorarium was? The exact amount of what I had been thinking about and praying about to give towards our Christmas offering. God supplied it. I mean, it was unbelievable. And really, it shouldn't be that unbelievable because God has proven that so many times throughout my own life. And I'm sure many of you can testify to the very same fact. But wait, it gets even better than that. The generosity of our Lord. Lo and behold, for the next three weeks, three, one week for the next three, I received cash gifts from family and church family for Christmas. Guess how much those cash gifts totaled? 
more than double of what I gave in the Christmas offering. That's just the way our God operates. Not all the time in the sense of cash, in money, in material possessions, but you can't outgive God. And I have learned this principle over and over. And again, I know many of you, you can testify to the same thing. That is the kind of God we have. He proves this promise over and over again. But this promise is based on a principle. Look at the principle here of generosity. The way you give is the way you will receive in turn. Now, it's been said that there are typically three kinds of givers in life. There's the flint, there's the sponge, and there's the honeycomb. To get anything out of a flint, what do you have to do to it? You've got to hammer it. And even then, you only get chips and sparks. To get anything, to get water from a sponge, you must do what? You've got to squeeze it. And the more pressure you use, the more you will get out of a sponge. But the honeycomb, oh my, it just overflows with its own sweetness. So let me ask us, what kind of givers are we? That's an important question in light of the principle here at the end of verse 38. Again, look what Jesus says. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, what Jesus is telling us here is that the way you will receive in return is the way you give. The standard you use will be applied to you. So if you are stingy in your giving, God will be stingy in return. If you are generous in your giving, God will be generous in return. Think of it this way. When you live with a closed hand, nothing gets away, does it? But nothing gets in either. This principle is emphasized by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, when he writes, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, that's a universal principle drawn from the farming community. Sow a little, you reap a little. Sow a lot, and you reap a lot. We give to an awesome Heavenly Father. We give to a generous God. And did you notice that God promises to take care of generous givers? And I love what Paul writes later on in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, where he says, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This is God's promise to those who are willing to trust Him when He simply says, Give, and it will be given to you. In essence, God is somewhat telling us, you go first. My boys and I, we came back from a ski vacation out in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, the ski resort, is known as a steep and deep ski mountain. And by that, it's deep snow, and we had a lot of snow. And it's steep. The mountain is steep. And it's geared for more intermediate to advanced skiers. And so there were places where me and my boys got not Darla. Darla was not with us. 
um, she was down on the lower end of the mountain. All right. Places where we got where we're lined up and there's cornices or ledges and you're like, Jack, go ahead, go first. <laughs> Tyler, go first. And that's what God is saying. Go first. But we don't like that. We want God to go first. And so we say, God, you give me the money and then I'll give. But God says, I've given you my promise. Isn't that enough? To which we reply, well, your promise is nice, but I'd like some cash to kind of go along with it. And to all our bargaining, God simply says, trust me. Trust me. Give, and it will be given to you. And that's why the issue here in the generosity paradox is always one of trust. Trust. And here are two questions to ponder. First question says, can God trust me with money? Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And we all like to play the what if game. What if I had a million dollars? Think of all the good I could do. Think how much money I could give back to God. I could give to God through the church. And what we really mean is, if I had more, I'd give more. But rarely is that ever true. And studies show that out. Listen, God isn't concerned about the million dollars you don't have. He's concerned about the $10 you have. The $100. The $1,000. What are you doing with what God has given you right now? So that's the first question to ponder. Can God trust me with the resources that he's given me? Number two, do I trust God more than money? That's the second question to ponder. And I love what David writes in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And so the simple question is, do you trust God when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive and give and it will be given to you? It's a matter of trust. Yes, it's a generosity paradox. On the surface, it seems like it's impossible. It's not true. But when you dig deep and when you trust the Father, you find that it is very true. The Genesco Company, I'm sure most of you have never heard of that. It began in 1924 as the Jarman Shoe Company. Some of you who are old enough, you may be more familiar with that name. It was a small manufacturer of men's shoes. The key figure behind its prosperous development was a longtime president named Maxie Jarman who saw in his father's small business an opportunity for explosion. And so acquiring other companies and maximizing their potential, Mr. Jarman broadened the company's product line to include women's and children's shoes plus a wide variety of clothing. He also enhanced profits by selling through company-owned retail stores. 
And let me tell you, sales and earnings doubled approximately every six years, beginning in the late 30s until 1968, when sales reached over, at that point in time, $1 billion. Making Genesco the nation's largest and most successful apparel conglomerate. Before his death in 1976, Mr. Jarman was a devout Christian who, who loved to give money to support God's work. At one point in his career, he suffered a series of financial reversals that cost him nearly everything he had. And as he struggled to put his life back together, a friend asked him if he regretted all the money he had given away over the years. Oh no, he replied, I only lost what I kept for myself. And that is so true. It all comes down to an issue of trust. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the Heavenly Father to be a generous God to you, a generous Father to you? Now, perhaps some of you are here and you're like, I don't know if I could ever trust in that magnitude to begin giving 90% of my income away or, or whatever the case may be, perhaps the place to start is just to start by giving. A small amount. Maybe 3%, 5%. And work your way up. The first step for you to take is just to start. To take that next step in giving to the Lord. And it's by taking that next step that we then put our trust into action. See, we can say we trust all we want, but if we never take any action to it, then how can we say we're really trusting? And so perhaps you're here and you're one who just needs to take the initial first step to begin giving to the Lord. Let me encourage you to do that. And again, the amount isn't so much as important. Start small. See what God will do for you. Begin to give on a regular basis. And here at our church, there's three ways that you can begin to give. You can give, obviously, through envelopes. Here in person, uh, in a few minutes, the offering plates will be passed by. You can drop your offering in, that off in the offering plate through the envelope. And, uh, in fact, we have boxes of envelopes that we have for our for our congregation, or there's envelopes in front of you that are on the pew. You can also give online. We encourage a lot of people to do that, to give online through glenwoodconnection.org. And some people, when they miss church, whatever, they may even give through the mail. But begin. Some of you have been giving for years. And you could stand up here and probably talk about this even better than I could and give testimony to God's generosity back to you. Let me encourage you to keep trusting, to keep following through on what you know to be true in this paradox of generosity. Wherever you may be, let me encourage you to trust the Lord in this area of stewardship of our finances. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being such a generous God. Thank you for giving your Son, Jesus Christ, and the salvation we have in him alone. 
Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to embrace this paradox of generosity and to learn that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. And to trust your promise that those who give generously will receive generously. May each of us take the next step in giving generously and willingly to you through your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The praise team's going to sing a chorus here, and as they do, let me encourage you to respond in prayer to the Lord, however the Lord is leading you to do so.